Um, thanks for having Glenda and I here. It's always lovely to come to Tasmania and to come and have the privilege of doing some ministry with you through youth group on Friday night, yesterday a seminar with some of you on connecting to Hobart today and to preach this morning. It's lovely to see a church where there's a lot of people and there's grey hair, there's no hair, there's young people. It's lovely to see that. And just to look at your bulletin and see the range of things that are happening. So thank you for having us here. Um, thank you also for sending Michael to Sydney for a few years to come to Christ College. Michael is one of those people who adds value to a group of which he's part. You already know that. And it was a pleasure to have Michael in college and to get to know him. Um, I wish you well as you now go forward to the next chapter with God willing, Mark Powell coming. Uh, I know Mark Powell quite well. We've been in the same presbytery and worked together and uh, our prayers will be with you, God willing, as Mark comes a little later. I'm going to pray. Gracious God, we thank you that in the scriptures you speak to us with the utmost clarity about yourself, about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and about our life together as a church. Help me now to speak in a way that is faithful to you, that is clear, that connects to us. And we pray that you would change us through word and spirit. Amen. This is weird, isn't it? I mean, it's Sunday morning in Australia. That's the time to be on the golf course or on a chilly Hobart morning to lie in bed or sit around in pyjamas in front of the fire or to go to the cafe or go for a run. It's just weird what we're doing. We've come out early, rugged up. Oh, we're sitting, the seats aren't too bad. Not always that way in church, is it? And we listen to someone talk to us for half an hour. I mean, some of us have to get paid to endure someone talking to us for 30 minutes or so, but we choose to come and do it. And then we choose to give our money away to people we've never even met. And then afterwards we have coffee. It's not quite cafe quality, is it? I mean, it's just weird, this whole church thing against what most Australians are doing. Um, what's it all about? How do we think about church? That's the topic I want to take us into today. We had two Bible readings. I, I want to have a third text, and that's the text of the story Cinderella in the sermon today. Let me remind you of the story. Cinderella was part of a happy family. Dad died, no, mum died, sorry, mum died, and then dad disappears, but now there's a stepmother who is a woman of remarkable cruelty. She has two daughters who take after their mother in every respect. And then the day comes, it's announced that the crown prince who is unmarried is coming to town and there will be a ball. Every mother of a single girl of marriageable age, here's my opportunity to become the queen mother. So Cindy's stepmother looks at the daughters. She calls the manicurist, the pedicurist, the hairdresser, the dressmaker, the cosmetician, and then she goes and buys these gorgeous outfits for her girls. They're going to the ball. The stepmother sees the chance to become the queen mother. Meanwhile, Cinderella, beautiful girl, 
is sent into the dark bowels of the house to peel potatoes or wash dishes. The night of the ball comes, off the stepsisters go, and Cinderella's in the basement. You know what happens then, the fairy godmother turns up, bing, waves her wand, and manicure, pedicure, hair, dress, shoes, cosmetics. Cinderella is looking gorgeous, ready for the ball. Whoops, how's she going to get there? Uh, there's a pumpkin, boom, with the wand. Pumpkin becomes a coach. How's she going to get there? We've got a mouse plague in New South Wales. So, boom, a bunch of mice are turned into some gorgeous Arabian horses. Off goes Cinderella. The prince has got all these young girls being pushed under his nose through the whole night. But then he's got eyes for one. <sighs> Cinderella. His heart beats, blood pressure rises. <sighs> That's the girl he wants. But then you know what happens. It gets near midnight and uh, the fairy mother bit, all that bit's going to end at midnight. The coach is going to turn to a pumpkin. The Arabian stallions are going to turn to mice and the manicure, the pedicure, the cosmetics, the dress, the shoes, boom, everything's going to go at midnight. So Cinderella rushes off, but she leaves a shoe. We know it's a fairy tale, isn't it? Because any story that has a shoe as its hero is a fairy tale. So Cinderella goes off. The prince is distraught, but he sees the shoe. And he tracks down, and you know the story. He eventually he gets to the house and he finds the foot that the shoe belongs to, and they live happily ever after. Um, royal families don't always do that, do they? That's how, another reason we know it's a fairy tale. Okay, what is to think about that story? When the stepmother looked at Cinderella, what did she see? She saw a threat to her ambition for her daughters and herself, and she acted on what she saw. What we see shapes how we think and how we act. She saw a threat and she acted to minimise it. What did the prince see when he looked at Cinderella? <sighs> he saw a bride and he acted on what he saw. What we see shapes how we think and shapes how we act. Let's think about the church now. When you think about the church, what do you see, what do you think, and how do you act? I want to give us three views of the church today. Two of them are wrong, one of them is right. You'll work out which is which pretty quick. The three views are to see the church apart from Christ, to see the church instead of Christ, and to see the church in Christ. Let's look at the first view, the church apart from Christ. This is when we look at the church from below. Christ is not in the picture. We're just looking at the church. And what do we see? We see an earthly institution which is made up of a bunch of imperfect people like ourselves. And when you bring a group of imperfect people alongside one another in something like a church, guess what? You've got an imperfect church that will have a dark side. So when we look at the church from below, we might indeed be very conscious of that dark side. And so we think of things like spiritual bullying and abuse inside churches. We think of the recent Royal Commission in Australia into institutionalised sexual abuse of children 
and the way in which, sadly, institutions run by the Christian church have been places where pedophiles have found their targets. Or we might think back in Australian history to the well-intended efforts at relations with our Indigenous people and how, although it's well-intended, we often got it wrong in church, as have we as a nation as a whole. I've seen many, many churches over my life and years in ministry. I do not know of one church which once you really get to know it, there is a dark side. I'm sure there is a dark side to Cornerstone. Uh, that should not surprise us if we read the scriptures. None of the churches that are written to in the New Testament are lauded as being perfect churches. I mean, the church at Corinth, you read what was going on there and it just makes your toes curl as you think of what was going on in that church. And then you read the book of Revelation, those letters to the seven churches, and you read through them. And again, you're seeing the dark side of the church. So there's realism in the Bible about the fact that imperfect people make imperfect churches. So when we look at the church from below, we might see the dark sinful side. And maybe we look at it from an angle of organisational effectiveness and measured against the best insights you'll find in the Harvard Business Review or Contemporary Management Theory. Quite frankly, the church is a pretty ineffective organisation. You wouldn't design something like the church to achieve the kind of missional targets that God has set us. Now put all that together, that means that in many parts of the Christian world, there is a low view of the church. We might see it as this man-made thing with a dark side that has outlived its usefulness. And so many Christians hold the church very lightly or they step away from it altogether. Uh, the fact that you're here today suggests that you still see some value in the church. But for many, the focus is on private piety or involvement in good parachurch organisations and being rather dismissive of the local church. And indeed, there are people who've simply chosen to walk away from the church while still professing the Christian faith, engaging in private devotion and in God's work. So, if we see the church apart from Christ, we see its dark, sinful side. We see a somewhat ineffective organisation and that may lead us to despise or dismiss the church and to depart from it. And that's a dangerous path to go down. So that's the first view, the church apart from Christ. I want to go now to the second view. Don't worry, we're going to get to the Bible later. Um, the second view is to see the church instead of Christ. This is when a person's focus is more on the church than on Christ himself. Now, some of you have come to Cornerstone after prior involvement in other churches where the focus is on the priest, it's on the sacraments, it's on the saints, it's on the building, it's on the ritual, where the focus is on almost anything but Jesus. And it is tragic to talk to people who've come from other churches and they say, I never heard about Jesus in that church. Now, it's very easy for us to kind of point the finger at churches like that. 
But there is a danger also in a church like ours that we become so consumed, so focused on all the good things you're doing at Cornerstone that our attention shifts from Christ and the loyalty that belongs to him, the faith and the hope and the love that belong to Christ. Instead, it goes to the church instead of Christ. Let's be clear that the church is good. It is given by God to help you and I come to faith in Christ, to help us grow in Christ, to help us stay in Christ, to help us serve Christ. Did you hear the repeated word there? In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. The moment we untie the connection between Christ and the church, all the good things about church are lost and the danger is that of idolatry. Uh, contemporary idolatry, as Tim Keller reminds us, is taking a good thing and putting it in the wrong place. So when we take God's good gift of the church and we put it in the place that belongs to Christ, we then have created an idol. It is good to love the church and to be a good church person, but it must always be in Christ instead of Christ. Okay, here are these two views then. The church apart from Christ and the church instead of Christ. What about you and I? I'd guess that most of us here can happily recite the creeds, I believe in the Holy Catholic or Universal Church. We recite that kind of creedal affirmation. What do our actions, not our words, what do our actions show about our attitude to the church? Um, if you're someone who gets up on Sunday morning and the temperature's below 10 and you say it's too cold, will stay home, or someone might be heading for a sniffle in the next two days, will stay home, or there's a soccer game being telecast on the TV, will stay home. There your actions are suggesting you hold the church very lightly. If on the other hand, your conversation, your focus, your delight, your joy is in the church instead of Christ, that also is a sign that you might have that second condition of the church in the place that belongs to Christ. So we've got two options so far, church apart from Christ, church instead of Christ. Um, these, both of these whole have partial truths. And you know that a partial truth is a dangerous truth. So if it's wrong to go down the route of the church apart from Christ, if it's wrong to go down the route of putting the church in the place that belongs to Christ, where do we go? Well, that takes us to our third option. I want to go back to the story of Cinderella. Cinderella ends the story as the princess royal. How did Cinderella get to be the princess royal? It's because the prince chose to love her. It's exactly the same with the church. We had two Bible readings earlier. Both of them talk about the church. The one from Exodus 19 talks effectively about the birth of the Old Testament church. The setting is that God through Moses has delivered his people from slavery. He's led them into the wilderness for their period of spiritual formation, 
prior to going to the land that he promised Abram, then Abraham, as he became the father of many. So they're in the desert. They come to Mount Sinai, and God calls a meeting with them, a meeting through their leader Moses. And just look at Exodus 19, what is going on there. God, first of all, reminds them of who he is and what he's done. He is the Lord God who's brought them out of Egypt. They didn't get out there by themselves. God acted to save them from slavery. And then now God makes remarkable promises to these people who in themselves are nobodies. And the promise is that out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, you, you're going to be my treasured possession. You're going to be to me a kingdom of priests. You're going to be a holy nation. Remember, Cinderella becomes the princess royal because the prince loved her. Israel became the church of God in the Old Testament because God chose to love her. The same point is quite made quite dramatically in Deuteronomy chapter 7, a speech at the end of the wilderness journey just before Moses dies. He reminds the people, this is in Deuteronomy 7, it's not because of you, not because you are more numerous that the Lord set his heart on you, for you are the fewest of people. So it's a reminder to Israel, you're nobody. But why did God set his heart on you? Verse 8 in Deuteronomy 7, it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors. Israel was like Cinderella. She was nothing until God loved her. But just as Cinderella becomes the princess royal once the prince loves her, so Israel becomes the treasured possession, the kingdom of priests, the royal nation. She becomes that once God loves her. Our second reading today from 1 Peter talks about the church in the time after Christ. It's a passage that very directly echoes the one in Exodus 19 and also refers to Isaiah 28 and gives it all a twist in the light of Jesus. The analogy that's used here is that of a building, a temple building. Now back in those days, when they built a building, what would happen is there'd be some, some trenches dug and they'd bring in this mighty big stone called a cornerstone and it would be care, very carefully put in place. And then the rest of the foundation would be put around it. And then the building is constructed. But everything is leaning back on that cornerstone, which is why that's the bit of the building they took the most care with. Get the cornerstone right, and the whole temple can be built properly. Get it wrong, and you're going to have the cracks and keep the stonemasons in work for a long time. So the church is compared with the temple the cornerstone, the irreplaceable basis on which the whole church rests is, of course, Christ. And then you have the foundation of the apostles. And then remarkably, you and I are given the privilege of, building the, of being the bricks that make up the church. Now, the point I want to draw is that the church, look at the description of it. This is talking about us, chosen race royal priesthood, holy nation, 
a people for God's own possession. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What a remarkable privilege you and I have that God takes people like us and that's what he makes us. The imagery of temple that's used here, it fits within a collection of metaphors used for the church in the New Testament. Uh, I read recently a study that someone's identified more than 96 metaphors for the church in the New Testament. So here we've got the temple one. We might think uh, 1 Corinthians 12, you are the body of Christ, so the human body. Uh, in Ephesians 2, uh, fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. I think the high point of the imagery of the church is one that we find by allusion in Ephesians 5, and we find it towards the end of the book of Revelation, where the church is described as the bride of Christ. Are you seeing the link to Cinderella now? The church as the bride of Christ. Again, let me remind you for the 15th time that in the story of Cinderella, the housemaid became the princess bride for one reason only, because the prince loved her. As I say, it's a fairy tale because you've got the shoe and the pumpkin and the mice. The story of God loving the church in Christ and making her a royal bride, that is far more wonderful than the fairy tale. Okay, let's pull the threads of it together now. What have we seen? We've seen two false views, church apart from Christ, church instead of Christ. Then we've seen where the Bible takes us, which is to see the church in Christ. Uh, we can say the church does have an earthly dimension to it. There are those dark sides of the church, but that is not the whole story of the church. It's true, but it is not the whole story. Again, we've seen the church should have a high place in the estimation of Christian people, but it should never become as a substitute for Christ. I just quickly want to draw some implications for you and I. The first is that when we come to church, realism. Everyone else in this church is like the person you see in the bathroom mirror when you get dressed to come out on Sunday. They are imperfect. They've got a history. Everyone else in the church has got scars from our past, before we were Christians, or scars we've accumulated. We've all got our anxieties, our phobias, our fears, our this, our that. Everyone sitting around you today, like you, comes as an imperfect person. But that's not a reason to despise the church. It's not a reason to dismiss it. It's not a reason to depart from it. It's a reason to love and accept one another with the grace of the gospel. It also means that for the leaders of the church, we need to have procedures in place to make church a safe place. And in recent years, in uh, the Presbyterian Church, of which you are part, we've given a lot of effort to develop protocols, codes of conduct, registration, checks of people working with the vulnerable members of our church, and that is all necessary and good that we comply with those measures because we need to recognise that every one of us is capable of the most grievous sin if not restrained by the grace of God. And when it comes to handling money in church, 
you never have just one person looking after money, do you? So in church, recognising the dark side, we need realism about one another's imperfections and we need to have that built into our framework. Another implication is that you and I need to constantly refresh our attachment to Christ, the head of the church. See, the church is visible. It's tangible. We come on Sunday, we see one another, we text during the week, we go to the activities in your bulletin. We see the church, it's before us, whereas we don't see Christ so readily. So can I encourage myself and you, and particularly the leaders, on a regular basis, reattach yourself to Christ. Remind yourself of what he's done for you in living the life you should have lived, dying the death you should have died, rising for your hope, and that he is the one in whom you have eternal life. Let's regularly reaffirm our attachment to Christ. Third implication is to thank God for the church. Uh, thank God for your church here at Cornerstone. And turn that thanks into action by committing to the life of the church, committing to its activities, committing to work together with your leaders to achieve God's mission. And remember, Cinderella became the princess bride because of the love of the prince. The church became the temple, the household, and the bride of Christ because of God's love for her. Let's see the church as God sees it. Let's treat the church as God treats it. I'm going to pray. Dear God, we thank you that you took that very unpromising group of Hebrew people and you deliver them through your anointed servant and you made them your treasured possession. We thank you that through your anointed servant Christ, you have delivered us from the tyranny and the slavery of sin and you have made us your temple, your household, your commonwealth and you have made us your bride. We thank you for doing that. Help us to see the church as you see it. Help us to commit to it, to be thankful for it. Help us to commit to one another. In Jesus' name, Amen.